Okay, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, um, that's going to be the first passage we look at, Hebrews chapter 12. Almost all the time, it's nearly every single lesson I present, it's born out of some sort of circumstance. Maybe it's something I'm struggling with or it's something I'm confused about um, and I needed time to study it. And so I think, well, I put all this time into studying it. I'll present a lesson on it. Um, This is uh, a different one. Some lessons are just more foundational. Like there's not anything particular going on. There's nothing I was really focused on. But it's more of a, a lesson that's to prepare us for the future. Um, and I was asked to actually uh, speak on this at some point, not specifically today. And so I, I put the lesson together, and so I was ready today. This is one of those more foundational lessons. And so we're going to spend a few minutes this morning talking about church discipline. Um, it, it always, I guess, for me anyway, and uh, in conversations, seems to come off with a negative connotation. Um, and even in in families, you know, as a child, when you hear the word discipline, it never has a positive connotation. And uh, God actually agrees with that assessment. I mean, that's what we're going to look at in Hebrews 12. For the person receiving the discipline, it, it's never seems like a positive at the moment. But when you take the eternal perspective, um, correct discipline actually never has a negative connotation from God's perspective. Um, it always is working something good. Um, you know, the actual, the word discipline has all kinds of meanings. You know, you, sometimes you hear the phrase learning a discipline, I'm learning a new discipline. Um, in that sense, it's a, you know, it's a something you're striving for. You want to uh, obtain it. Um, there's, there's the phrase, I'm taking a disciplined approach. Right? That means I'm I'm getting rid of distractions, I'm going after whatever it is I'm going after, I'm being disciplined in it, right? And that, and that has a positive connotation. Um, and we, spot, we already talked about the discipline of a father, but then we also think about athletes, right? We, we, a, a good athlete is a disciplined athlete, right? I'm going to carbo-load only on the day before my race, and I'm not going to you know, be involved in all these activities that are hard on my body because I'm preparing for this race and I want to beat my old time. Maybe they're not even competing against other people. They're running in the same race as other people, but they're really competing against their past performance. And so they discipline themselves. Again, that's a positive connotation. You know, even in the concept in the Bible is in a family context when, when you look at how discipline is used. And I, that's what I want to look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. The Hebrew writer writes here, It is for discipline that you endure. Speaking of these trials. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, this passage is 
giving us an idea of how God views just, in general, the, the concept of discipline. Um, he knows that it's not, joy, or it's not joyful or pleasant for a person to receive discipline in that moment. I mean, he, he admits that right here. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful in verse 11. That doesn't mean it's wrong or that it shouldn't happen. Right? Because the result, right, those who have been trained by it, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the other thing we see here is the contrast between God's discipline and the discipline of man. God's discipline is perfect. Always. He actually never makes a mistake in his discipline. Um, it's not at the wrong time. It's not overly harsh. It's not too easy. Um, it's not misguided. Like, he just directs us in the wrong way with his discipline. It's always what we need, when we need it, and in the right measure. That's the difference between God's discipline and the discipline of man. Even in this text, he says, our earthly fathers disciplined us as seemed best to them, which means even under the best intentions, fathers don't get it right all the time, right? But that doesn't mean that the discipline should stop. Do you see? Do you, look at the argument he made in the first part of this text. Verse 8, if you are without discipline, of which you've all become partakers, you're illegitimate children and not sons. So he doesn't say the misguided application of discipline from a father means that a father should never apply discipline. Because then that's the worst case. It's worse than not having any discipline. or It's worse than having the wrong discipline is not having any discipline. Right? That makes you basically an illegitimate child. Your father doesn't even look at you as a son. You're not mine. So why am I going to exert any effort to guide you and shape you and mold you? That's much worse than someone who makes a mistake in their discipline. And so I wanted to use this text to show that even though man's discipline is not to the standard of God's discipline, God expects man to execute and implement discipline anyway, knowing that we're going to make mistakes. Right? It doesn't excuse us from showing discipline. It doesn't excuse fathers. And it doesn't excuse the church either as a whole. So we see discipline has a place among family, and in the moment it's not pleasant. Right? And lack of discipline is inexcusable. There is discipline in the family. Now another passage that sort of brings our scope down a little bit, that's the big scope. That's discipline in general. Big discipline. Right? God says, God uses discipline, He expects discipline. But now let's bring the scope down a little bit and look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And not specifically think about just you know, a, a physical family, but, but let's think about a church family, right? Because we're brothers and sisters. In, in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul is dealing with a very, well, I think it's a, a, a particular problem, it seems to be. Um, the Christians in Thessalonica had gotten really confused about when Jesus was coming, and they were like literally you know, quitting their jobs and stopping everything in their lives, sitting on the porch, like twiddling their thumbs and just looking at the sky, kind of waiting. Like, is, well, you know, is he behind that cloud? 
You know, I mean, they were like, had put their life on hold. And some of them were, had become, made themselves burdens to the rest of the brethren who maybe had a better understanding of Jesus' return. And so they were saying, well, I'm your brother. I quit my job to wait for Jesus' return. So, you know, you've got to support me. You've got to help me through this. Because I still need to eat until he gets here. Right? Um, and Paul's sort of dealing with that misunderstanding. He's dealing with the fact that uh, people aren't working. Right? But in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 3, he also makes kind of this, this statement, or these statements that can be applied generally to his teachings. Look in verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly, another word that can be used there is undisciplined, life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. And in this context, Paul's tradition that he's talking about is, hey, we worked. I was there in Thessalonica. I was preaching and teaching the word, and I was working. So if, you know, I gave you that example, you keep away from these brethren who are not following that example. But if you look at what he says, he says, every brother who leads an unruly or an undisciplined life, not according to the tradition which I received from you. Is that the only tradition Paul ever gave a church? No. Is that the only discipline a Christian has to exercise? Is, okay, i got to work for my food, and as long as I'm working for my food, I can live my life any way I want. Well, of course not. Paul's dealing with a specific principle, or a specific problem here, but the principle is general. Right? He says, keep away from a brother who leads an undisciplined life. Not according to the tradition. Now skip down to verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 13, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as what? A brother. Here we have the family situation again. Admonish is a, is a, a type of discipline. Right? It, it's... Again, some, sometimes um, people look at this and think, wow, that's really harsh and that's terrible and how can you do that? And when you look at a family, you never think that. Well, yeah, a child should be disciplined. When, when they're leading an undisciplined life or they're unruly, they, they should be chastened. Well, Paul is just saying the same thing happens amongst ourselves. We are not all going to walk perfectly and once in a while, it could be me and it could be you, somebody's going to start rebelling. Not just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm making a mistake, right? But at some point, right, we're going to rebel. And that's what he's talking about here is someone who's just looking at you saying, yeah, I know you guys don't approve of this, and I'm walking this line. This is how I'm living. Well, Paul says, okay, that brother needs to be admonished, and you need to stay away from him. That's an undisciplined life, Okay. So we see a general attitude that's to be expressed by Christians toward those who are unruly or undisciplined, right? Which is, I'm not going to associate, right? But there's some contact because how can you admonish without contact? You can't. I'm going to admonish you by silence? It's not admonishment. There's no teaching. There's no benefit there. So there's contact. But he's saying there's no association. And I think we can take that to mean is like, you know, I'm not just hanging out with you 
smoothing things over, saying, yeah, everything's cool with us, because how can you be put to shame otherwise, right? Verse, end of verse 14. Take special note, do not associate so that he will be put to shame. There's no shame if every time you want to be with me, I'm with you. But when you come to me and say, hey, let's go hang out, I say, you know what? You haven't fixed this in your life. I can't hang out. Now, if you want to sit down and talk about it, if you've got your Bible, we can sit down and we can talk about this thing. But I can't associate myself with you until you've straightened this out. That's the kind of, and, and the goal of that is to put that person to shame. It's to embarrass them. Right? And it's not me trying to embarrass them. It's God saying, this is what I expect of you, and I'm, I'm binding on Richard that he don't, he's not going to associate with you. Right? It's not me making the decision in, in that sense. Right? Now we'll see in, as we get into 1 Corinthians 5, there is a decision made by people. So that's the general attitude toward Christians should have toward a brother. This is, okay, we're talking about brethren. He leads an unruly life, an undisciplined life. Um, God, knowing that we're imperfect, us, and that we lack all his knowledge, right? Nevertheless, gives instruction here through Paul that we are to keep away and admonish undisciplined brethren. That means we have to make judgment. As a congregation, right, is this, is this a brother who's living undisciplined and unruly life? Right? He binds on us to make that judgment. So then our fear of mistake or our lack of knowledge, say, well, I don't know everything. Well, you know what? You're not going to know everything. And God doesn't expect you to know everything. Now we need to investigate, right? But we can't know everything, right? So our fear of mistakes or our lack of knowledge is an unacceptable excuse for not carrying it out. That's what I see in this text. All right, so now let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 5, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Because there we have a specific example, and we see it carried out in what Paul instructs in his, his attitude toward the congregation when perhaps they didn't carry it out. So 1 Corinthians 5 is, is only 13 verses. I'm going to go ahead and read it because um, we really do need to read this, this whole text because we're going to talk, about, not verse by verse, but we're going to talk about the whole event. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the church, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, 
I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Okay. Now some will want to make an argument saying, well, you know, this is discipline that's happening in the church. It's happening at the direction of an apostle. And Paul makes this, this statement. He says, hey, my, I've already judged him like I was there. And in fact, now when you're gathered together and I'm with you in spirit, you know, carry this out. Right? But I want you to note in verse 9 that this is not the first time Paul's written to them about this. What does he say in verse 9? I wrote to you, so 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians, right? There was another letter to the Corinthians. We don't have it. But Paul references it here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And he seems really kind of irritated that they tried to apply that to the world and not to brethren. Um... You know, it'd be like you telling your child, go put on your boots. And your child says, well, I've already got my shoes on, so I can't. Okay, that's technically, that's true, right? You can't put your boots on over your shoes. So what do you have to do? You have to take your shoes, right? So you sit down and you, you know, the child's just being kind of rebellious at that point, but not, you know, just sort of being irritating. Well, I get the sense that these, this church is doing the same thing. Well, he said not to associate with immoral people, and that would just mean we can't talk to anybody, so maybe we just don't understand. Obviously, we don't understand. Because he said, we can't do it, and that means we can't leave our house. And that can't be what he means. Well, that's not what he means. Right? And Paul, again, seems to be, in the tone of what he's writing here, a little bit irritated that they didn't make that application correctly. If you look at verses 10 and 11. He says, what I actually meant was, it's brethren that I'm talking about. Right? And he seems to think that they should have gotten that. Or he would have written it the first time. Right? He thinks that what he wrote the first time was sufficient. Which means they should have already made this judgment. They should have already taken action. They should have already purged out the leaven. And they haven't. So I don't think this gives us any indication that we have to have a, a letter from Paul pointing me out and saying, get rid of Richard. Richard's living in sin. And I'm judging him. You can't because you don't know. No. The letter they received from Paul the first time that gave them a principle that said, stay away from immoral people. That principle is what he's saying you should have already applied before I, before I heard. That puts us in the same boat they are. We have letters with principles in them. God expects us to apply them without a letter to every single church on earth pointing out every individual by name who needs to be dealt with. So we do have the responsibility. And it's not specifically incumbent on a, an apostle to point us out. Okay. So I wanted to deal with that because Paul does make a point. He makes the point twice. My spirit is there. My spirit's already judged this man. Right? And when you gather to do this, my spirit is with you. 
but I think if you read in the context of the passage, he expected them to have already done this. So who are the parties involved? Okay, there's the church as a whole, and then there's this unrepentant brother. That's who we're dealing with. And I think that's an important aspect. Unrepentant brother. Look at what Paul says. There is, right, up in verses 1 and 2, there is now, present tense, sexual immorality among you. Or your version just may say immorality, but it's the Greek pornia, which means sexual immorality. The same word we get pornography from. There's pornography happening in the church. That's what he calls it. The church of Christ, he says, that's among you, and you're, you're allowing it. Present tense, right? It is happening. A man has his father's wife. Present tense, right now. That's going on, okay? That is really important. This is not, you know, I led some unruly life when I was 17, and now you're going to withdraw from me at 38, right? You might be really shocked and, and disgusted by what I did at 17, right? But I'm not living in that, okay? This is someone who's living in that sin. It's present, okay? So what's the course of action? Well, I think if you look at verses 2 and 4, it appears to be pretty public and done in the assembly, uh, you have become arrogant and not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst, right? There should have been, right? This is, again, supporting my previous statement. Should have been a removal already from the midst of the congregation. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord, this is when they're gathered, right? In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, right? What's supposed to be carried out is supposed to be carried out as a congregation by the congregation, this isn't something that happens behind closed doors and it's hush-hush, right? Well, you know, don't let the rest of the people know that, you know, Richard's being rebuked or Richard's being disciplined. This is done in the open. Right? And it's done as a congregation. You know, if, you, if many of you may have been in congregations where there are elders... And it seems like, right, everything's done by the elders and it's not done by the congregation. Um, but if you, if you remember back, I think hopefully what you also remember is that as the brother was persisting in sin, that the elders were talking to the members saying, encourage, exhort, admonish, call, write, stay in touch with this person. So that the, the activity is being done by the congregation, and simply the decision point is left up to the wisdom of the elders, right? It's not that the elders are carrying out the work of the congregation. The decision point at which the elders say the rebellion is persistent and unyielding, right? Well, then, you know, a congregation would have to make that decision about when persistence is shown, right? Well, the elders, are, it's just left to the elders, the wisdom of the elders to make that decision, this is being done by the congregation. You know, in our case, without appointed elders, the burden is greater on each one of us. Um, 
we could be lulled into a state of shared irresponsibility. Well, I, you know, I know so-and-so is, I know because I've seen it or I've been told by him he's living in this sin. But you know what? Robin will take care of it. I'm sure when Robin finds out, he'll say something. And, right? And if I never even speak to the brother, I never speak to anybody, right? And say, hey, come on with me. I know this is a problem. This person hasn't listened to me. Let's sit down two or three and discuss this, right? Well, then it just becomes shared irresponsibility. Everybody's sort of closing their eyes, looking down, saying, well, somebody else is going to deal with this. So it's harder for us. Right? But the burden is real and it's there. And it's not that we go tattletailing to each one and gossiping about someone. Right? What did Jesus say to do with a brother that was in sin? Right? You go. If you know, you go. You go talk. And then if that brother is rebellious and says, no, I'm, I'm not changing this, then you bring one other with you or two. So in the presence of two or three witnesses, everything can be confirmed, right? This is not about gossiping. You see every conversation that happens in Jesus' example happens with that person. There's not a conversation that happens apart from that person. All the conversations happen there. We need to follow that example, right? So we can't shy away from talking to this person, right? Or talking about this responsibility among ourselves. You know, and as I stated earlier, in this this course of action that has to take place, there is judgment required. Um, You notice in verses 12 and 13, Paul actually mentions the idea of judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then he follows up, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Within the church, the church does judge, must judge. Not the type of judgment that pronounces condemnation. That's a different type of judgment. Like, you're going to hell. That's not the type of judgment we're talking about. We're talking about discernment. What you're doing is sinful, and we judge that you're actually rebellious in this sin. It's not a lack of understanding. You see it, and you say, I don't want that. I want to do this. Right? Discernment has to be used because we cannot know a person's heart. Regardless of what words come out of their mouth, you can never absolutely know a person's heart. That person and God are the only ones who can know. Okay? And yet, here we are. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. How do you know if he's wicked? Right? Judgment. Discernment. And then when you discern that the wicked man is wicked, right? You remove him. So just like you saw in in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica, not having all the information or being afraid that we're making the wrong judgment, right? It should cause you to be sober and want to get as much information as you can. And that's appropriate. But it's never an excuse for just saying, well, I just don't know his heart. That's right. Paul never says you've got to know his heart. Never says you've got to know his heart. 
Paul says you have to know his actions and his attitude. That's all you got to know. And Paul calls that a wicked man. Right? So again, we don't have to pronounce someone wicked and say, oh, I'm judging you from the perspective of God and I see your heart. That's a lie. You don't see anyone's heart. But we do have this responsibility. I see that you're living in sin. Here's the text that plainly sees it. You and I have studied this text. You are just, you don't, you, you haven't even said that you misunderstand it. You just said you don't want to live that. Right? There's a difference between misunderstanding and rebellion. This is rebellion. Okay, so there is judgment to be exercised. It is to be done publicly. It is to be done as a group. So the details, what does it look like? Well, in verses 9 and 11, you can see there's no association with this person, not even to eat with such one, right? So again, what we're seeing is social stuff, social interaction. Um, and then there's this kind of confusing thing in verse 5 deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh now I'm not going to get into all the uh, what I believe is error on this um, but I think what's going on here is you're simply pulling back the protection of the congregation you're not spending time with this person, so what are they going to fill their time with? Satan. Um, I have seen this in so many, well, I, I won't say so many. I've seen this in too many Christians that I have personally spent time with who are trying to shake an addiction. I and others will try to chew up their time with anything. Let's just go sit somewhere so that we're in proximity to each other so that you'll be too ashamed to carry out your addiction in front of me. If that person wants to get away from their addiction, they will do that. And if that person does not, they will not. Right? What he's saying here is, don't spend any time with this person who's in rebellion. Don't try to chew up their time. Right? You may think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm helping them right? by, by sort of using up their time and we're, we're going to go see a movie. That'll chew up four hours because maybe we'll eat before. We, we, you know, we might get a little snack or something. I'll, chew, I'll keep them safe for those four hours. Right? That's noble of you to think that. But God says no association. Deliver that person to Satan. If that person wants Satan, let that person have Satan is really what he's saying. For the destruction of their spirit? No. Look again at verse 5. It's for the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit may be saved. Remember what we read in Hebrews 12? All discipline seems at the moment to be unpleasant to be not joyful. Yeah. When your parents spanks you and says, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. Right? I'm sure for some parents that's true. <laughs> right? But it does, right? You don't even like to ex execute discipline because you received it. 
at some point you received it, and you didn't like it, and you know what it feels like. Paul's saying this is what's got to be done. So there's no association, there's no eating. Delivering to Satan, I believe, is, is pulling back all of these protections that the church affords its members, which is talk to me you know, when you're having a bad day. Let's go out and, and have a meal together because you've had a day surrounded by your coworkers who are just terrible in the sense of worldly. And you've been inundated all week by these worldly attitudes and you just need to get away. Well, you know what? The person in rebellion, God says, don't let them get away. Give them that because that's what they want. That seems harsh. And that's God's discipline. He's not interested in your flesh surviving because your flesh isn't going to survive. He'll see you without anything bodily, happily, if it saves your spirit. He'll take your eyes, your nose, your ears, legs, hands. He'll take everything you got if that's what it takes to get you into heaven. So what's the purpose? talk about the purpose and then we'll get into just a couple of points of application we'll be done the purpose is obviously the salvation of the individual if you look at verse 5 right? it's for their, the salvation of their spirit but don't you find it interesting that's the only verse that mentions that person's salvation the rest of chapter 5 and really the rest of 1 Corinthians is about the salvation of or the purification of the church Do you, did you notice that? He's constantly saying, get, them out from the, get him out from the midst of you, right? Verse 2, remove from your midst. The concern isn't with him, the concern is with the church. Oh, he needs to be protected from you Christians. That's not why he's removing them. He's removing them because the church needs to be protected from the brother. Verses 6 through 8, we, that's what we talked about, we read this morning. We are here celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Passover has been sacrificed. And Paul's saying, get the leaven out. The celebration is even in God's will. It's not pleasing to God because you've got leaven amongst you. Clean out the leaven. You could make the argument that the bigger concern in the text seems to be the congregation. And yes, verse 5 is the one verse that says, and his soul be saved, his spirit will be saved. But he's pounding this over and over and over saying get the leaven out because you need to be pure the church the congregation needs to have no acceptance of rebellion no countenancing it well I'm just going to look the other way right so there's a twofold purpose so how, how do we apply this then what do we do right again I, as I said at the beginning this isn't something that I I'm doing now because I thought there was a necessity for it. I was just prepared to do it today. So I think the application for us is we need to study God's Word so we know how to apply His principles. If you're afraid of executing discipline because you don't have a good understanding of God's Word, get a good understanding of God's Word. There's a real simple fix. Get a good understanding. It's 110% in your control. Do it. Get rid of that fear. It's still going to be uncomfortable. It always will be painful, right? 
But the better understanding you have, the more likely you are to make the right decision right, when it's time. Secondly, imagine how you would want to be approached by a brother or a sister. And prepare yourself to be that person. Right? If you were in, in rebellion, not making a mistake, if you were in rebellion and you thought maybe no one knew, but you were rebelling and you know it's unacceptable, how would you want to be approached by someone who knows? Right? Imagine how you want to be approached and you be that person. Be kind, come with scripture, and show the error in God's word, not in your likes and your dislikes and your preferences. How would you respond? Think about that. If you're in open rebellion and someone came to you and said, you're in rebellion and here's the scripture that shows it. What, what, what I would ask you to do is sort of prepare yourself now to respond like David responded to Nathan. David knew that he had done wrong. I have, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind at all David knew killing somebody was wrong. And taking their wife before they were dead was wrong. Right? But he's living in rebellion, but then when he's presented with it, that's how you respond. I have sinned. Prepare, let's prepare ourselves for when someone comes to us, regardless of how they come to us. They may not come to us the way we want them to. Prepare ourselves to respond and say, yeah, I see that. That's hard. Right? And finally, this, is, this was a hard one for me for years. Would you even notice if you were withdrawn from? I have been in so many congregations where I would not have even noticed. And it's on me. It's not on the congregation. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have changed my life one bit. Because I didn't seek the protection of being part of a family. I was always out there in the wind on my own. I'm of my own choice. If you feel like you wouldn't even be affected, right? that should be a red flag for you. Hey, I need to I need to insert myself into this family. Because I'm giving up all kinds of protections that God has designed for the church by just hanging out here on my own. Right. Those are the applications I would I would make today. We don't need to go around looking for somebody to discipline. We need to look in the mirror and make sure I'm not the one that needs to be disciplined. And when I am, I'm going to accept it as discipline from God. But if you are living in rebellion, right? we all live life and make mistakes. That's different. But if you're living in rebellion and you know that there's something in your life that God says, no, and you say, Yes. 
that is rebellion. If you're living in that, this is the group of people to talk to, to get over that and get beyond that and get out of that, right? Before it becomes something that your heart is so callous like Pharaoh that when somebody comes to you, you say, I don't care about you and what you think, and I don't care what's in God's Word. I want this. Don't let it get to that point. Robin's going to sing a song that's designed at this time to give you an opportunity to ponder that, that thought. Are you in rebellion? And if you are, just talk to someone and say, I think I'm living in rebellion. And just open the Bible and discuss it. So if you would, let's stand and sing as Robin leads us.